Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova, Oral Delights, show number 85. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Everyone, welcome. Hello and welcome to the Oral Delights, show number 85, a fun-packed show coming to you today. I'm coming to you on a bit of a wing and a prayer today. The the engines, the big old engines of the Starship so far have just had a kind of a, a reboot, should I say. We've got Windows 7, or I've installed Windows 7 on the kind of main machine there, and you know what I mean, a little bit... So yeah, hopefully I'm trying to record this any way I can and get it on there. And hopefully, if you listen to this, hopefully everything's I've reinstalled everything back on Windows on the machine there, and everything's hopefully okay. I've done it twice there now, and I must admit, mind you, Windows Seven. Oh my, what a beauty! What a beauty! It's faster now than what it was my machine before. Lovely. So, little heads up, what's coming in today? Sure, we have Scott Garrison. From Comic Book Outsiders, delving into The Surrogates, a review of a graphic novel. Main fiction tonight comes from Jeremiah Talbot, a.k.a. Jeremy Talbot over there from a regular on the sofa no toast. And we have our very own Mr. J.J. Campanella, Dr. J.J. Campanella, with his fact article for me. But before all that, a little heads up into the sofa no show, what happened last week. Well, this was the first time... Well, first time, definitely since like, Kieran was there, like live in the flash, we, flesh, we had a live studio guest, Diane Severson, and it was really nice. First time, you know, the first time you kind of meet someone in the flesh, but it, it was, I don't know, like a, I seen her like a little fierce drop, like when she's seen this for the first time. Oh, <laughs> no, Diane, it was it was lovely. It was a great time. Do you know what I mean? Diane was up in in England, flew over from Germany there with. Our husband Magnus to go to a wedding, and we arranged to kind of meet up for one night. And Diane, the Starship Sofa, put Diane and Magnus up for the night, and it was excellent. And like I say, we got a show recorded for the Sofa Notes, which was you know a great show as well. On there was like I say, Jeremiah Talbot, Diane, and our very own the Dark Master, Mister Fred Heimbaugh. So listen over to the Sofa Notes show, great show. So first up, we have Scott Garrison from the Comic Book Outsiders. Do pop over to the Comic Book Outsiders and take a look there. Scott, if you would be so kind enough to take the floor. Hi, it's Scott from the Comic Book Outsiders podcast again, back with our segment that introduces you to some of the very best in graphic novels, both new and classic. And this week, I've got a real treat for all of you. I'm going to review The Surrogates, written by Robert Venditti, drawn by Brett Weldell and published by Top Shelf Productions. 
If you're interested in checking it out, then it's worth doing so soon, as it's due to be released as a motion picture starring Bruce Willis, Rosamund Pike and Ving Rhames on September the 25th, 2009. Now, when I'm reading a piece of science fiction or fantasy, I'm quite ready to believe anything that you, the author, wants me to believe in this universe that you've created. I'm quite happy to accept faster-than-light travel, ghosts, all-powerful rings... Aliens, the fact that anybody really cared to see how Mulder and Scully ended up after ten years of the X-Files dying a slow and painful death. I'll believe anything. But here's the thing. You, as the author, have to believe it too. What I mean by that is that you have to then present a world to me that's consistent with these ideas that you've presented before me and asked me to believe. We've entered into a contract where we've said, okay... Let's pretend time travel is possible, for example. But if you then break that contract by, for example, contradicting something that you've already set up, or making a big deal out of a problem that would be trivial to solve, if you just use this device that had been invented earlier to get you out of a different situation, then you break the immersion for both of us. If we're going to play this game, we need to make it sure it all makes sense. And time after time, particularly in television you see these self-contradictory events happening. Well then, let me introduce you to one of the most consistent, well-thought-out, believable and logical pieces of speculative fiction I've ever read in the form of the graphic novel The Surrogates. First published in 2005, we discover that in the year 2054, people will commonly use surrogates electronic, remote-controlled bodies that humanity operates from the comfort of their own home and is responsible for all human interaction. Imagine the possibilities. Your surrogate can always remain slim and attractive. You are not confined by traditional concepts of gender. There really is no such thing as murder anymore, since generally the worst thing that could happen is the destruction of your property, the surrogate, which you can then replace. You can enjoy the sensations of drinking alcohol, smoking and promiscuity without any of the concomitant health problems associated with those activities. It's easy to see how with the invention of such a device and making it reasonably priced for the average person, humanity would be changed forever. And what Robert Venditti does is show us in a striking and well-thought fashion exactly what that world could be like. In this world, surrogates are as common as mobile phones. Literally, everyone has one. People no longer interact on a personal level, not even between husband and wife, preferring these ever-youthful avatars to go out into the world for them. Imagine then in a society like this, what happens when suddenly someone starts killing off surrogates? Who's doing this? How does it happen? And most importantly, why is this happening? In a world entirely dependent on surrogates, what the world of 2054 is facing is nothing less than the destruction and reinvention of its own society. Despite being a story writ so large, the journey that we are taken on is a personal one. We follow Police Lieutenant Harvey Greer investigating these cases of property destruction, but more importantly than that, we follow his personal journey as his own surrogate gets destroyed and he's forced out into the world as himself for the first time in a number of years. We see him tackle the case in the flesh, 
and watch as he begins to appreciate the wonders of experiencing life once again firsthand, to the amusement of his colleagues and the unhappiness of his wife. It isn't so much sensations he's missed out on, as his surrogates give him all the tactile feedback he requires. It's just the thrill of experiencing life as himself again, with all of its joys and risks. So this then is The Surrogates, an epic story, a personal journey, and a fascinating, consistent world to set it in. But really, it's also much more than that. Just as Fahrenheit 451, 1984, and Atlas Shrugged are about book-burning, dystopia, and a railway, respectively, there's a philosophy and a certain amount of reflection that occurs within The Surrogates. One can hardly fail to notice the similarities in society today that must surely have motivated aspects of this story. The 11.5 million players of World of Warcraft, which, incidentally, if it were a country, would make it the 73rd most populous country on the planet, ahead of countries such as Greece, Belgium and Ireland, must surely recognise the experience of fighting, laughing socialising and cooperating with others through avatars under their control. Not to mention the many of us who use IRC, Second Life, forums and other of the many sorts of virtual personality out there. In fact, many of us, me included, will probably spend longer as an avatar than they do in real life, if the phrase real life really means that much anymore. This graphic novel helps us to reflect on that both for better and for worse, and explore one possible future society which, if not within reach for us, our grandchildren might find themselves living in. It is against this backdrop, not only the fictional world of the surrogates, but in today's world of increasing surrogacy, that we read this stunning, entertaining story. Brilliantly drawn by Brett Weldell, who brings solid inks and washed-out colours to this truly world-class graphic novel. As well as the story, which is broken down into a number of short issues or chapters, the world is further made real to us by some absolutely fantastic pieces of extra information scattered throughout the book. We can read scholarly articles written by distinguished but fictitious professors deconstructing the history behind the world of the surrogates and how they came to be such a pervasive part of society. We can peruse advertisements for the latest in surrogate technology, and so on. There's not a doubt that both the writer and artist went to a tremendous amount of effort to make us feel like this really is a futuristic world that is plausible and real. So that's it for this week. I hope you go and check out The Surrogates. As you can tell, I'm a huge fan. It really is an amazing graphic novel. If you'd like to get in touch with me and give me feedback on the segment, or maybe you've checked out The Surrogates and you'd like to tell me what you think, then you can always get in touch by emailing me. My email address is scott at comicbookoutsiders.com. Okay, that's all for this week. We'll be back in another month's time with another great graphic novel for you to check out. In the meantime, have a week. There you go, Scott. Thank you so much. Look out for another review coming by The Comic Book Outsiders next month. Main Fiction Tonight is by Jeremiah Talbot. And this story that Jeremiah has wrote, or Jeremy, over there on the sofa notes, comes from the new John Joseph Adams 
Anthology Federations and John Joseph Adams has had some fantastic anthologies out there. Wastelands, Seeds of Change, Living Dead, Living Dead 2. You know what I mean? This guy, when he puts an anthology together, they all just go straight to the top. So look out for John Joseph Adams. The premise of the book and the collection of stories is, you know, you're talking about Star Trek and Star Wars and all their federations. John Joseph Adams has taken that kind of concept and then looking into the future, you know, in the way, what will be like, what will the federations be like well into the future? You know, and that's a great idea. And he's got some amazing short story writers on, or writers in general on there. Just take a listen to some of these Orson Scott's cards in there. Ellie Modisset Jr.'s in there. Louise McCaster Bourgeois in there, Harry Turtledove, Alistair Reynolds, Alan Dean Foster, Robert Silverberg, Anne McCaffrey, Mary Rosenblum, Robert J. Sawyer. Fingers crossed I'm going to try and get Robert J. Sawyer on the show. And hopefully we'll get some more of these guests on, you know, who've got the stories in this book. Like I say, Jeremiah Talbot's in there with The Culture Activist. Excellent story. Alan Steele. Alan James Gardner. Ho! Oh, fantastic. And this story is narrated by none other than Ray Sizemore. Ray's, you know, Ray's done some amazing narrations, and he's like, say, he's got that kind of certain quirky voice. Not, I don't mean quirky in, in strange and bizarre, but it just suits certain stories. And this is one of them stories. Do pop over to Ray's site. Links to everything will be on the front of the website. Ray, thank you very much for this narration. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present The Culture Activist by Jeremiah Talbot. The Humpty Moon vanished two days ago, devoured by the ravenous nanobugs of an advanced wave assimilation swarm. But had I noticed? Of course not. I was so absorbed in my work documenting the intricacies of the Humpty's pairing ritual that I was numb to anything that didn't involve flap-on-flap action. I was so busy ensuring their culture's survival by recording them screwing that I missed the actual herald of their doom. Typical. It wasn't until I finished filing away my recordings in my hardbrain storage and tuned back into the drone of the grand debate that I picked up on what had happened. I had bugs recording the proceedings, and it was mostly the usual dry legal stuff. But when I finally picked apart the thread enough to realize that the subject under discussion was just where the hell their world's primary orbiting body had gotten off to, I nearly evacuated my humpty renal bowels. One of the more disgusting biological characteristics of the humpty body that I'd had to put up with over the past several UP standard months. The theory gaining the most support was that a dark, unobservable mass had moved through their system at near light speed and dragged away the moon in its wake. The Humpties, being of the general shape and form of an egg with stumpy, nearly useless legs, were keen astronomers and understood physics and astronomy at a level far more advanced than one would expect from a race of their otherwise primitive level of technology which is to say they had gotten past the point of blaming the gods for everything that happened and moved on to thinly-backed pseudo-scientific evidence. The truth, that the moon's disappearance heralded the arrival of beings from other worlds, was a minority opinion and losing ground fast. Like many sentients, 
The Humpties had a hard time imagining a universe inhabited by anyone but their rotund selves. I might have had time to escape had I noticed the advance wave swarm ripping the Humpty moon apart, molecule by molecule, converting it into an unbelievably wide variety of consumer goods that would soon be launched at the surface of the Humpty world at high velocities inside protective, heat-shielded capsules. But my ship was hidden more than 100 clicks from the nomadic Humpty community I had infiltrated. On Humpty legs, it would take me a UP standard week to make it there. Despite my certainty of failure, I made a go of it. I began shuffling away from the herd, ignoring the frightened look of the Humpties on the fringes. From their perspective, leaving the comfort and conversation of the group was madness. I might as well have dug up a rock from the mossy plain and cracked my skull open with it. I called in my bugs, and the swarm buzzed helpfully around me, providing tracking data on a variety of objects entering the atmosphere. I dismissed the information with a very humchian wet snort. No shit, guys. One of the emergent AI in my swarm snickered. You in trouble, deep shit, screwed, royally bullshit. Again with stating the obvious. I told them to stay dead quiet. If the UP knew they existed, it would be all over for all of us. Nukes from orbit, just to be sure. The first goods capsule hit half a click away and unfolded into a blossom of blue flames. Judging from the size of the impact, it had to be a habitation module. The big stuff usually came in first. Toasters didn't quite have the same awe factor as four-wheel drive vehicles and two-story starter homes. But the delivery mechanisms were notoriously flaky and the goods didn't always arrive planet-side intact case in point. I could make out the smell of fear excretions from the Humpty herd in the distance. The debate had turned into nothing more than chaotic noise. Other rogue culture archivists might have taken the opportunity to collect data on the disruption of a native culture, but I had seen plenty of that in my time, both in my current life and the one before. The consumer goods that had begun to rain down from the heavens reminded me of Santa Claus, that mythological, magical creature that flew through the air bringing toys and gifts to all the children of Terra, delivered simultaneously on a single night. A colleague specializing in the old cultures long since subsumed by the UP did a calculation once based on population estimates and given how absolutely fucking huge everything was back then, and figured old Santa's volume of goods to be tens of thousands of cubic meters. This was like that, only if some primitive government had fired a surface-to-air missile and blown that magical bastard to smithereens. Merry Clausmas, Humpties. Try to get out of the way. A bright light blinded me momentarily as something large and loud came crashing to the moss before me in a slightly more controlled fashion than the goods capsules. The light resolved into a standard-issue UP welcome wagon. The shuttle's hull crawled with infotisements for everything from the latest in prophylactic advancements to Genesis bombs to baby's first nanoswarm. I instructed my own swarm to turn down all incoming offers, which were already hitting hard and fast. 
We'd been out of contact for a couple of years, and the little buggers were hungry for upgrades. But they had to listen to me, or each little microscopic piece would self-detonate. A little something you need to pick up on the black market after you go rogue and leave the UP. I'd also purchased the removal of certain protocols, necessary in fostering an illegal AI powerful enough to make a survey world vanish from existence in the data net. Okay, obviously not completely wiped, or I would not be standing on stumpy little legs, flaps agape, staring at a pornographic video playing along the hall near the lower right landing pad. It had been a few years since I had seen UP standard bodies going at it. Deep tissue memories stirred, and retasked cells twinged with an effort to engorge. It would have almost been amusing if I wasn't as the swarm-taught A.I. had said, "'Fuck sword.'" With the welcome shuttle safely on the ground, the hatches blew, releasing glittering dust and confetti. Loud music blared from newly revealed speakers. A pod bay door irised opened, and a creature my subconscious had relegated from memory to recurring nightmares strolled gracefully down the plank and onto humpty soil. Captain Luiana Morgana paused, moistened her perfect lips, and frowned her wrinkle-impervious brow. She was flanked by red shirts of various thuggish models and trailed by a pair of officers, one of which also featured prominently in said nightmares. "'What the?' I said, forgetting myself and squelching out the words in an approximation of the UP lingua franca. The music died down. Cadet Cav, Morgana said to one of her crew. I thought you said the data indicated no prior contact with the United Planets. It did, said a gender-neutral voice from within the crowd of perfect unitard-wearing specimens of UP standard, a.k.a. Homo sapiens. But I also told you, Captain, that the probes picked up signs of UP technology shortly after nanoassembly completed. I took note of the gender neutrality and mentally raised an eyebrow. A neuter? In the UP Corps? Half the fun of joining up was getting to fucking suck the natives into conformity. I tagged this bit of information as weird, possibly useful. Whoever this Cav was, and he hadn't been in Luiana's crew back in my days aboard the Jolly Happy Fun Time, Nee was also the first UP citizen I had any interest in speaking with in several years relative. I didn't want to think about how long it had been in real time. Numbers that big made my hard brain throb. Looks like we have an expat on our hands, said a sneering voice I recognized as Adam Kilkenny, a waste of memory storage if ever there was one. He had taken up as Luiana's boy toy and second-in-command shortly before I had jumped ship. Which, I would like the record to show, had nothing to do with my defection, mostly. My swarm informed me that Luiana's swarm was politely querying for an ID, and not so politely backing up the request with a threat of nano-annihilation if they did not comply. I toyed with letting the little bastards have at it, but Luiana would figure me out soon enough. I gave them the go-ahead. The crew became immediately silent. Adam began to laugh, and 
Louiana's eyes widened, then narrowed. Birdie? It was a pointless question. My swarm had already confirmed my identity with zero chance of error. I pointedly ignored it. Data began to fly back and forth between the swarms of the crew, but I was able to pirate a few bits. The neuter wanted to know who I was, but nobody was telling them. Louiana instructed the semi-sentient red shirts to take me captive, but to go easy on me and not damage anything, and Adam sent the UP backdoor codes necessary to shut my swarm down to only the most basic functions, against which I had no defense. They could have hurt me in a million ways and not wounded me as badly as that. My emergent AIs were wiped out of existence in a flash. I had coaxed them from the chaos of the swarm. They were the closest things I had to friends. Now I had another reason to add to my clicks-long list titled Why I Should Murder Lieutenant Adam Kilkenny the First Chance I Get. Bertram Kilroy, I hereby put you under arrest as a most wanted sentient for the crimes of data theft, attempted thought pattern murder, and non-conformity, Adam said, voice oozing with pleasure. You forgot treason. I said. With my swarm incapacitated, I didn't bother to struggle as a couple of the meat puppets took hold of me and dragged my humpty body into the welcome shuttle. The actual sentient crew conferred on a secure signal I couldn't infiltrate with a crippled swarm. Yep. Fuck sword. Nothing to do now but wait for my trial. Or... Possibly find a way to subvert the crew's conformity, escape the shuttle, and kill Lieutenant Adam fucking Kilkenny in a very messy fashion along the way. Even the condemned have dreams. The red shirts tossed me in an empty cargo container, previously used for incubating celebratory champagne, and shut the lid. One plopped his barely sentient, well-toned ass down on the lid as if I was going anywhere on my stumpy, humpty legs. And so to my first order of business. I struck up a conversation with my swarm. They were crippled in a dozen ways, but medical features remained online, which gave me all the functionality I needed at the moment. I scrolled through my library of body shapes and idly considered a berserker model of some sort, but ultimately decided given the available mass and time that I should probably stick with UP homo-sape standard for now. The homo-sape frame had done its fair share of murders and mayhem in the million and a half or so years of its evolution. I had to remind myself of a central tenet of the culture archivist code. It's not the size of your tool, it's how you use it that ascribes certain cultural and moral values to a people and social group. My nerve cells began to ache, so I shut off pain for the duration of my transformation. Swarm noted that it would take half a Terran standard to complete the process, given the humpty frame as a starting point and allowing for available carbon. Half a day of agonizing pain while my organic bits reshuffled? No, thank you. I blissed out instead. Voices shook me from my daze. 
I focused long enough to hear the neuter order the red shirts to leave, and my half-human, half-humpty eyes blinked in the harsh white light of the shuttle bay as the lid slid aside and revealed the androgynous face of an angel. "'I've been instructed to give you a thorough bio-examination,' Nee said. "'My name is Cadet Cav.' "'Wouldn't want me keeling over before the trial,' I said. "'My vocal systems were slowly coming into a shape more compatible with lingua franca. "'I think Lieutenant Kilkenny would prefer it, actually,' Cadet Cav said, absent-mindedly. "'And he had the half-focused eyes of someone sorting through a stream of data coming in from its swarm. "'No surprise there, but I doubt the captain will let that happen,' I said, shrugging not realizing until that moment that I was starting to have shoulders again. I had actually missed shrugging. The Humpty equivalent of a shrug was a torturously long rhetorical device involving subtly belittling the idea in question without outright calling the sanity of the speaker into question. Say what you will about the fuck-ups, their language afforded a certain efficiency. Which was, of course, part of the whole damned problem. Efficiency wins out too often in the end. The neuter's eyes snapped into focus. All done. I've instructed my swarm to facilitate your carbon acquisition to speed your morphing along, by the way. Thanks, I muttered, suspicious of why the cadet was being so friendly, but its next question made the reason plain enough. So who are you? I've never seen the captain surprised by anything, and you must have done something interesting for Adam to hate you so much. Ah, gossip. I was your captain's second-in-command once upon a time, I said, being honest for once. You've really never heard of me? I wasn't sure whether I was pleased or hurt by Niz's ignorance. I only joined the crew of the Happy Jolly Fun Time a couple of relative months ago. This is my first assimilation mission. Yeah, about that. Why are you in the Corps being a neuter and all? No offense, but there aren't a lot of you interested in this line of work. It was the neuter's turn to shrug. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And that was all he said. Fair enough, and it gave me an opening. At the time, huh? Not so happy with the state of things now? Nee paused. I am a little surprised at the lack of respect for non-assimilateds in the delivery of welcome kits. By which cadet cav meant the exploding capsules of doom raiding down on the Humpty planet as we conversed. You'll get over it, I muttered. You didn't, cav pointed out. I don't know who you were, but I know what you are now. A deserter. An expat. The least of my crimes, I said, preening not just a little bit. The neuter tried to stifle a grin and failed. I've only heard stories about people like you. What's it like out there? Where? Knee waved in his long, thin hands. Out there. Outside of the U.P., Oh, you wouldn't like it. You can't buy anything on credit. The food is too rich. The languages are too complicated. The sentients are barbaric, and they practice the most obscene customs. Horrible, truly. Every day is a struggle to survive. 
You are making fun of me, the neuter said. He's very good at that, Captain Luiana said from the bay door. She was wearing her hair down, long and golden, just the way I had liked and Adam hated. Interesting. Go join the others, Cav. There are plenty of goods left to distribute. These poor sentients barely know how to use a stick, if you can believe that. Cav paused, about to speak again, but departed, apparently thinking better of it. I wondered what the neuter's last question had been, and how long it would be before Cav was back to ask me more. I turned my attention to the captain. You know, their lack of tool use has allowed them to develop a sophisticated rhetoric that's quite fascinating, I said. You mean they're so bored for lack of toys that all they do is sit around and bullshit? I nodded, another odd gesture after having no neck for so long. That would be the UP way of seeing things. The only way worth seeing things, she said. Bertie, you're uglier than ever. Thanks for noticing. You're not going to take this seriously at all, are you? she asked. I continued my practice of not answering questions, to which she already knew the answer. What are you doing out here? Studying, I said. Luiana sighed. I liked the way it made her breasts heave. My human biology was definitely dominant once again. The motion would have been repulsive to a Humpty. Adam thought that you were playing Little Emperor. If that was the case, you would not have caught me running through the muck. I would have been sitting atop a golden throne, surrounded by my adoring people. I looked past her, into the passageway. Two red shirts loitered nearby, blocking any possible escape attempt. So she had learned something since I'd left. Besides, I would have to be a much smoother talker to convince the Humpties that I'm a god. You don't give yourself nearly enough credit. You almost convinced me of something equally ridiculous once. Almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. What? Forget it. An expression I picked up from a friend of mine. I don't believe it. What, the expression or that I have friends? She laughed at that, finally. I felt a previously unnoticed tension in my new muscles relax. Both, I guess, she said. Look, let's stop tiptoeing around this. What happens next? She put on her professional face, stern, commanding, sexy. The natives have two planetary rotations to affirm their citizenship in the U.P., At which point we'll direct the celebrations, seed the atmosphere with swarms, and depart for our next mission. Dropping you off at a UP Central Court along the way. Or. Or. Or we lose Adam's mind store, copy you in his place, and you ride around in his old looks until people forget about him. And you come back to me. I smiled and ignored the second option for now. What if they don't affirm? Scowling, she barked. You know exactly what. But I want to hear you say it, 
I said before I could stop myself. She slapped me hard across my 85% human face, her swarm giving the blow just a little extra pain juice. The temperature in the room dropped a couple degrees Kelvin. She pressed her hands against her upper thighs and pushed down, smoothing her unitard. It was a nervous habit I had seen thousands of times a lifetime ago. By rejecting citizenship, they identify themselves as a threat to peace among all sentience, and they will be treated as such. Standard operating line. It sounded the same as the first time I heard it. Better get the bombs ready, I said. The Humpties aren't going to go for it. Birdie, I can count the number of sentient species that have not affirmed on one hand. You'll need two hands after tomorrow, I said with a sigh. You'll be damned lucky if they can even come to a consensus by then. They debate the names of their children for two years after hatching. We're persuasive, she said, sounding almost defeatist in tone. I had won most of the arguments, and that hadn't changed. She had won the fistfights. Oh, I know that. Now you're telling me things I already know. Think about my offer, she said. Her eyes pleaded in a way her voice could not. She slipped away, leaving me to think about those eyes more than I wanted to at the moment. I settled into my crate as the red shirts marched back in to take up the guard. My energy reserves were running dangerously low thanks to the cellular restructuring, so I did what comes naturally in such situations. I took a nap. I was awakened by a brutal kick to my now fully human ribs. I felt one of them break, and then the tingling as my swarm jumped into action, knitting bone back together. I had been tipped out of the crate onto the bay floor. Adam was standing over me. So are uh, you the ghost of Christmas future? I asked, groaning. Shut up, he said, and kicked me again. Enough of that, and my crippled swarm would not be able to keep up. I know she was in here. What did you talk about? Don't lie. I'll know if you're lying. How bad you are in the sack, I said, just barely bracing myself in time for the boot. The pain, while severe, was worth it. In the good old days, there were few things I took more pleasure in than needling Cadet Adam. Perhaps, in retrospect, not the greatest of habits. You have no idea what you're talking about. He abruptly slumped to the floor beside me. I tried to calculate my speed versus his, and whether I could grab his neck and snap it before he could call for aid. But the math was not in my favor, something my swarm helpfully confirmed. She orders me to wear your face sometimes. Hmm. Kinky. There's this empty space in her bed, and I can't fill it, no matter what shape I take. I've tried everything. Toys. Enhancements. I even decanted into doubles and had a threesome with myself. Ugh. She's never satisfied. Why are you telling me this? I asked. Because I can't tell anyone else, he shrugged. 
and you're a dead man walking. Something took over me, some impulse that was so unfamiliar I had forgotten the word for it at first. Pity, is that you? Can't say that I missed you. Your sister's self-pity has kept me plenty of company, thanks. I proceeded to explain the peculiarities of Luiana's G-spot and several sexual techniques that I had developed over the course of a dozen relative years in her bed. He listened with a kind of dull eagerness, like he didn't want to admit I was teaching him anything useful. All you're lacking is time, I said. In some ways, you're a better match for her than me. How so? he asked, his eyes narrowing. You don't ask too many questions, I said, squeezing my eyes shut and preparing myself for another blow. But it never came. When I opened them, he was gone. I waited, ticking off the hours until the affirmation deadline. Instead of screaming wordlessly and flailing about uselessly, I passed the time asking the red shirts questions I knew they couldn't answer. I attempted to teach them how to play gin rummy. It would have been easier if I had had a deck of cards, I suppose. Also, if the red shirts had more than a pea's worth of brain cells. Just when I was beginning to doubt my people skills, and a few minutes after the deadline had passed, the neuter returned. And he sprayed some kind of pheromone from a spherical canister, and the red shirts fell to the ground limp. No decision from the Humpties, then? I asked. Worse than that, they've refused. Huh. I thought for sure the promise of a chicken in every pot would do it for him, I said, not bothering to explain the historical reference. So when does the bombardment begin? I noticed the calf's elegant hands were shaking. No bombs. She's ordered a disassembling swarm. The U.P. Council considers this method more... humane. The neuter spat the word humane. I would have, too. I did, not so long ago, probably. The details of that final argument were buried as deep in my heart brain as I could manage. It had not just been painful for Louiana. I wish I could say I had discarded her offer, but even now it was on my mind. Then my swarm notified me that their full functions had been restored. I queried for my emergent friends and received only dull, quizzical responses. It would take me a decade to encourage them back into existence, but maybe I would have that time now. I would never have them back if I agreed to Louiana's proposal. With my disposition, I'd never have children. My A.I. were as close as I was going to get. If you like, I offered, I'll knock you out and you can pretend that I used villainous spyware to overwhelm you and your swarm. Adam will believe it, and Louiana will pretend to, so you'll get away fine. Cav shook in his head. I want out. I'm not sure I was ever really in. I figured my only hope for escaping the U.P. was to join the Corps. It's the closest thing to unrestricted travel. Nobody wants to go anywhere anyway. Everyone looks the same, watches the same vids, lives in identical houses. Sameness everywhere. That's the U.P. Cav shook in his head again. They're talking about discouraging the non-gendered, you know? 
some on the council think it's too nonconformist. We don't think like the gendered, they say. Good for you on that point, I say. But I was only partially kidding when I described how bad it is out there. There's little comfort where I'm going. Are you sure you're ready for that? Honestly, Cav laughed. I'm sick of being comfortable. Right. I cracked my knuckles. Let's go kill some fuck-ups, then. Command comm centers hadn't changed a bit since I'd last been on deck. Most of it was automated, tied into swarms, but there were the token data stations for the sentient crews. Adam was concentrating on a scroll of info-dense code, but Luiana was waiting for us in the center of the deck. Cav, you're one stupid bitch, Luiana said. Ah, I thought. So that explained to the hands. Hard to erase every single trait of gender. Luiana, Adam said, interrupting what I am sure was about to be a fabulous soliloquy on why the Humpties had to die for the good of everyone else. Blah, 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 heard it. I can't shut down his swarm. Need assistance, help, support. Where the hell have you been? Took refuge, hid, camouflage among Cadet Cav's swarm in final moments. New so fantastic I could kiss my AIs if they had a corporeal form. I settled for a giddy laugh instead. I don't care, Captain Luiana said. The disassemblers are in the atmosphere already and I can still knock this asshole flat. The climate became frigid as her swarm drew on ambient energy to hypercharge her muscles. Nasty trick, and I was almost prepared for it, but she moved too quickly for me. She always got in the first blow. I was sent sprawling. My vision was awash with swarm biodamage warnings. I'll take you up on that offer of help now. How's that for us? Luiana! Adam cried out. He's harboring an AI! I noticed Cav flinch at the claim from the corner of my eye, just as I felt the surge of energy from my swarm's glucose factories. The room grew cold enough for our breath to turn into fog. I swung back. The blow connected, just barely, but all I wanted was to make contact. My swarm lived up to its namesake, rushing into her systems, kicking in the doors, and generally being right bastards under the command of the artificial intelligence gang. I really needed to come up with a better name. Hmm. The Notorious AIG? Uh, Luiana's eyes rolled into the back of her head as my friends wiped the meat blob clean of any trace of her mind pattern. From there, it was a short hop to Adam. He didn't go down so easily. Nano-engineers are prepared for my tricks. Fuck off, he said, executing a swarm command override. Ouch. My swarm began to drop individuals by the hundreds, error lines crowding my field of vision. I dropped to my knees. When my vision cleared, Adam had me by the throat. Damned human throat. So easy to choke. I should have gone with that berserker model. Assistance required? Um, yeah. A wave of cold washed over us as someone's swarm sucked the air's ambient heat. I squeezed my eyes shut for the skull-crushing blow, but instead, I could breathe again. 
I opened my eyes. Cav stood over what was left of Adam's corpse, staring at his blood-soaked hands. I felt another stab of pity, but I told her to get lost. I had a planet to save. I took a seat at my old control station. The memories came flooding back. Years ago, during the incident that had convinced me to tell the UP to kiss my ass, Louiana had pressed a hollow button and bombs had set off tectonic activity. In a matter of hours, four billion sentients had died in the worst earthquakes ever recorded. That was how the UP dealt with nonconformist threats. If it had been bombs again this time, the Humpties would have been screwed, but I knew a thing or two about swarms. I had, after all, grown my AI friends very carefully. The controls and defenses in place in the disassembler were stronger than I had ever seen. But my friends had spent a million generations learning their way around a swarm. I handed over 60% of my hard brain's processing capacity to the AIs. They squeezed inside, ranting and sharing data so fast it made me dizzy. For a brief second, I worried that they would overwrite me completely and take over. But they calmed down, and we got to work, cracking codes and hacking back doors in the swarm net. We stopped the swarm only halfway through the disassembling process. I pulled up a spy cam onto the data station and looked out on a world that had suffered more chaos in the past hour than it had in the past 50,000 years. I guess a little evolutionary pressure on the survivors might not be a bad thing in the long run. But my work was completely ruined. I had a record of the Humpty culture as it was, but not a complete one. It would have to do. Cav was in tears. I was too late. Get used to it, I said stiffly. We're the bad guys, and we almost never win. In fact, not to be a downer, but all I did was buy them a little time. The UP will be back here soon, and the next time the Humpties won't dare refuse. Why do you even try, then? Cav asked, his voice breaking. I gave Cav the same speech my culture archivist friend had given me during my recruitment. One day, some UP citizen is going to wake up and feel hollow inside. And they'll go digging on the net, and they'll find a hidden data store I put there, rich with cultural history and practices. And maybe they won't be a direct descendant of the original species, but with swarms it won't matter. They can change as easily as their ancestors became UP standard. They'll sneak off, and the culture will come back from the dead, if only just for a little while before the UP stamps it out again. This has happened before? I nodded. It has, and it will again. We archivists tend to the process like a garden. We harvest the seeds and plant them in the net. Sometimes it takes a thousand years for them to take root, but when they do, they grow into one hell of a blossom. Cav sniffed and wiped it in his eyes. That's so... bleak. I never said it wasn't. Nee stared off into the middle distance. There's a new voice to my swarm, Nee said. Is that... 
Sorry, I guess my friends laid eggs. Which explained the unexpected help in the fight. I was a little disturbed by the news. AI didn't replicate. They were too complex, or so said the conventional wisdom. Ha ha ha, I can have multiplicity. Quiet, you. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't go back now, Cav said, tone halfway between a statement and a question. Not without purging my swarm of a sentient mind. You kind of passed the commitment point a few clicks back, I said. The lights dimmed as the ship's systems began to falter. Tied as they were to the captain's now-deceased swarm, I was surprised that it lasted as long as it did. We'll land safely, with relatively little harm, only a few bruises, almost certainly zero fatalities. I turned back to Cav's tear-stained face. Thanks, I said. For what? Cav asked. Leaving the UP I could handle, but harboring an illegal AI wasn't... Cav paused. I didn't plan for that. Another pause. I listened to the AI's chatter as they merrily hacked through the ship's systems. I guess I should thank you, too. My turn to ask what for? Without you, I don't think I would have been able to do it. The UP would have forced me to change eventually, and I can't go back to who I was. I had been planning up until that point to bring up the idea of Nim swapping back to female, but decided against it for the time being. I had thought there was some chemistry between us, but maybe I was wrong. I sure as hell have been before. Brace for impact in T-10. Better hold on to something, I said. It's nothing but bumps and bruises from here on out. Goodbye, comfort, Cav said wistfully. The impact was rough, but we lived through it. And a hell of a lot more after that, too. Maybe, if you're lucky, you'll find another data cache and learn how things ended for us. But first, you need to look through those files on the Humpty Culture. Ask yourself, is this who you really are? Ask yourself, and don't be surprised at the answer. Never stop looking. There you go. Just want a big thank you to John Joseph Adams for letting Starship Sova put out that story. Big thank you to Jeremiah Talbot. You know, Jeremy, what an amazing little story that is. Thank you so much. Ray Sizemore. What, Ray, what can I say? Quirk little voice. Thank you so much. <laughs> Next up, Dr. J.J. Campanella with his fact article for me. Jim, lay it on me, sir. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this evening's May 2009 edition of Science News Update. I'm your host, Jim Campanella. First, let me start off by saying I have almost nothing to say about the swine flu pandemic. We've had talking heads from around the world filling us with accurate and inaccurate predictions and commentary, and I simply refuse to add to that morass of information. My only comment is very oblique, and it is this. The so-called pandemic has been a long time in coming. I was not at all surprised at its emergence, and I suspect most microbiologists just nodded their heads in simple resignation. It has been predicted by many epidemiologists for years. I will simply refer you to the text, 
The Coming Plague, Newly Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance by Dr. Lori Garrett. It was written back in 1994 and is still as important a text today in understanding sporadic epidemics as it was 15 years ago. You could pick it up for pretty cheaply on Amazon if you're curious. That's all. Let's get down to uh, less bone-chilling subjects. Several months back, you will remember that there was a wonderful David Brin story on the sofa, narrated quite skillfully by Julie Davis. The name of the story was Temptation, and it concerned genetically uplifted dolphins on an alien planet. It was, to say the least, a very cool story. The dolphins have amazing abilities in Brin's uplift saga, but it is amazing sometimes how truth is even more incredible than fiction. In the most recent issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology from May 2009, there is a research paper from Dr. Sam Ridgway's lab at the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program, along with his colleagues at the University of California. This new paper suggests that dolphins have even more mind-blowing abilities than we ever guessed. The title of the paper is innocent enough, Dolphins maintain cognitive performance during 72 to 120 hours of continuous auditory vigilance. But what exactly does that actually mean? Well, first of all, let me tell you, as a parent of young children, I am still not getting enough sleep per night as I should. I have covered this ground in previous podcasts, so I will not go into it, but I have not gotten a night of unbroken sleep in almost a year now since my son was born. I have no doubt that you all know how difficult it is to function after a few missed nights of sleep. However, it seems that dolphins have a clever trick for overcoming sleep deprivation. In that physiology article, Dr. Sam Ridgway explains that dolphins are able to send half of their brains to sleep, while the other half remains conscious. What's more, the mammals seem to be able to remain continually vigilant for sounds for days on end. Ridgway's paper examines whether the dolphin's unrelenting auditory vigilance tires them out and takes a toll on the animal's other senses. Ridgway and his team set about testing two dolphins' acoustic and visual vigilance over a five-day period to find out how well they functioned after days without a break. Ridgway and his colleagues trained two dolphins to respond to a 1.5-second beep sounding randomly against a background of 0.5 second beeps every 30 seconds. Ridgway explains that the sounds were low enough for the dolphins to barely notice them as they swam through their enclosure, but the animals sprang into action every time they heard the 1.5 second tone, even after listening to the sounds for up to five days without a break. Their auditory vigilance remained as sharp as it had been five days earlier. And just as a side note, Why does this sound like dolphin torture to me? I know if somebody did something like that to me, I'd be homicidal at the end of five days. I guess dolphins are much more forgiving. Anyway, that was just the first part of the testing and training. Next, they designed a visual stimulus to test the dolphins' vigilance while they continued listening to the repetitive beeps. Knowing that dolphins' binocular vision is very limited because their eyes are situated on opposite sides of their heads... The researchers trained one of the dolphins to recognize two shapes, either three horizontal red bars or one vertical green bar, with her right eye before training her to recognize the same shapes with her left eye. The researchers reasoned that if half of her brain was asleep during testing, the dolphin would only see the shapes through the eye connected to the conscious half of the brain. 
but they were a little surprised when they began training the dolphin's left eye. She already recognized the shapes, even though her left eye had not seen them previously. Ridgway explains that the information must be transferred between the two brain hemispheres, and he suspects that the dolphin's interhemispheric commissures, which connect the two halves, may actually be transferring the visual information. This is a surprise in dolphins. And this is something that happens in humans who do have binocular vision. But nobody thought that it would occur in dolphins who lack stereoscopic vision. Now, having trained both dolphins to recognize the shapes, the hard part began. They started monitoring and rewarding the dolphins continually over a five-day period while testing the animals' responses to both sound and visual stimuli. Incredibly, even after five days of listening to the 1.5-second beeps among those 0.5-second beeps in the background, the dolphins were still responding as accurately as they had done at the beginning of the experiment. The team also enticed the dolphins into a bay at night where they could be shown the horizontal and vertical bar shapes, and they found that the dolphins were as sharp at the end of the 120-hour experiment as they had been at the beginning. And when the team checked the dolphins' blood for physical signs of sleep deprivation, they couldn't find any. After five days of unbroken vigilance, the dolphins were in much better shape than the scientists were. Well, now you begin to get the idea of why the U.S. Navy is so interested in training these amazing animals for use in combat situations. As you can see, they would be better at long-term vigilance than any human could ever be. I refer you to the second-rate George C. Scott movie from the 1970s, Day of the Dolphin. To anyone who loves dolphins and thrillers, it's actually a pretty good movie. And no, as far as I know, dolphins still can't talk, no matter how much tutelage they have. Onward and upward. You know, it's odd sometimes the way my life seems to reflect these odd little science stories that I bring you. I have a 36-month-old daughter right now. As one of my older colleagues with grown children once said, quote, Kids at that age are basically wild animals. You just have to wait them out until they are socialized. Unquote. Unfortunately, I have witnessed that my colleague was correct. My daughter is essentially a small wild animal whom we are continually in the process of trying to tame. As any of you with children know, the most difficult thing to deal with at that young age is the public tantrum. At home, your child can scream and rant as much as they want when they don't get what they want. But in public, at a restaurant, or a store, or a church, well, that's an entirely different matter. You deal with it as best you can with a combination of threats, entreaties, and promises. But there's no way to ever get out of it cleanly. Well, it turns out that other primates have just as much of a problem dealing with this issue as humans do. Dr. Stuart Semple of Roehampton University in London reported a study of rhesus monkeys in March in the proceedings of the Royal Academy. It turns out that rhesus macaque mothers are about twice as likely to let a howling infant have its way during very public tantrums than during more private moments. If a rhesus baby does not get its way, for example if feeding is cut short, then the baby will let out a shriek that is apparently quite unpleasant. Dr. Semple calls this high-pitched grating scream quote-unquote pretty harsh stuff, which is probably an understatement given that he is writing for a scientific journal, and we are always taught to not exaggerate in our scientific writing. I try to make that clear to my own graduate students who ignore me and continually throw around superlatives which I am constantly editing into oblivion. Anyway, 
this is the really interesting part. It seems that if the tantrum takes place in public where the screaming can be heard by other rhesus monkeys, then the onlookers get restless and offended by the screaming. Both the mom and the unhappy baby become 30 times more likely to suffer aggression and attack from a bystander during a crying bout than they would in quiet times. Most of the aggression came from monkeys that weren't close relatives and outranked the mother in the social hierarchy. Relatives proved a bit more tolerant. Depending on who was nearby, the baby's tantrum was appeased with varying levels of success. So, for example, if there were just relatives of the mother and baby nearby, then the baby's luck rose to 53% to get whatever they wanted. But with unrelated onlookers hearing the screaming who outranked the mother in the dominance hierarchy, the babies won the tantrum contest 81% of the time. Wow. Seriously, this is exactly the difference between my kids being at their cousin's house or being out in public with strangers. I never even thought of this before, but there's a serious correlation between how quick we are to appease our own human kids' tantrums. I begin to wonder whether there's not a clear evolutionary reason that humans act this way as well. Imagine being on an airplane for a six-hour flight and letting a child's tantrum run rampant. By the end of the flight, you would be on the same par as a terrorist hijacker with your fellow travelers. We have socially survived for thousands of years because we quickly quiet our children, when they might be otherwise quieted in a much more violent way by strangers. But much as my imagination runs wild, suggesting a selective advantage in shutting our kids up in public, there are other more primitive primates that do not do this. The article mentions the Thomas Longor. The babies of Longors throw tantrums as well, but since they tend to take care of each other's children, even unrelated ones, something called alloparenting, there does not seem to be the physical threat there that other langurs may attack the babies. Semple says, quote, we need to start thinking about communication in more realistic terms, unquote. What he means is that in the real world, communication takes place not just between two people. There's often a whole slew of other listeners who will interact as well. Okay, just to be fair, let me finish this by pointing out something else from Semple's work. It turns out that even mom can get more than a little annoyed at her little darling if given enough unremittent screaming. After analyzing detailed records, Semple found that the rhesus monkey mother's behavior, on average, was 400 times more likely to get aggressive toward her own baby when it was crying than when it wasn't. As one evolutionary biologist I know put it, quote, Why do you think babies are so damn cute? If they weren't cute as buttons, then the species would have died out after the first few nights of screaming and being woken up at 3 a.m. Their cuteness protects them. Unquote. I just wonder whether rhesus monkey moms also think their little darlings are cute. Okay. The last story has to do with a disease which you do not see in the northern hemisphere very often. Dengue fever. I have an odd interest in dengue fever. I actually have an in-law that got dengue fever. Now, when you hear that someone gets a horrid disease, you usually respond with, Oh my God, that's dreadful. But in the case of my one brother-in-law, it was more along the lines of, Oh really? I'm not at all surprised. My wife has told me innumerable stories about her one brother, who growing up literally broke every bone in his body at one time or another. He is what you might call accident-prone. Not that this has ever stopped him from doing whatever he wants. One of my favorite stories my wife tells was when she was a kid. She was biking with her brother and passed a house 
with a large, seriously nasty dog. The dog was off the leash one day and ran at them as they passed on the street. The dog actually ignored and ran past my future wife, who I am sure was probably quite tasty, and attacked her brother quite selectively. That is the kind of life he has led. Anyway, several years ago, he stayed with us for a couple of weeks before he was going to work as a teacher in Bolivia for a Catholic missionary organization. He stayed with us while he took some training in New York City with the missionaries. He broke his leg here while playing basketball before he ever actually left the country. It was only a hairline fracture, and he recovered quickly and was back on his feet promptly once he was down south. Well, once in Bolivia, he was on a field trip with a bunch of school kids, and he decided that a swim in a nearby tropical river might be fun. All the kids and teachers were fine, but he succumbed to what later was diagnosed as dengue river fever. In addition, I believe that he picked up a non-communicable form of tuberculosis down there. He's now recovered from both of those, found a lovely wife down there, and has been living a mostly healthy existence back in the States here. Why did I just go on about my purposely unnamed brother-in-law so? Well, you don't meet someone every day who has actually had dengue fever and lived to tell the nasty tale. It is an unpleasant disease. I say it's rare, but only in the North. The disease is carried by mosquitoes, and 40% of the world's population is believed to be at risk from the infection. What's more, previous exposure to other strains of the fever does not confer protection. In fact, subsequent infections are usually worse and can result in a fatal dengue hemorrhagic fever, which you really don't want to know the details of. At any rate, there is no vaccine for this disease. And since there is no vaccine, scientists have had to turn to more creative ways of dealing with the problem. In this month's issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology, Drs. Scott O'Neill and Elizabeth McGraw of the University of Queensland in Australia and their colleagues examine one of the alternatives to reducing the number of dengue fever sufferers worldwide. Essentially, they want to make the mosquitoes who pass along the disease sick themselves. It turns out that the bacterium Wolbachia pipientis shortens insect lifespans in general. The researchers infected the primary mosquito vector of dengue virus, Aedes aegypti, with this disease. The hope was that the microbe's ability to shorten lifespan and spread through host populations by actually living within cells would mean that it could be used as a biocontrol agent to reduce dengue virus transmission. So remember, the goal was to make the mosquitoes sick so they would be less likely to bite and infect humans. Well, that didn't exactly happen. The insects did die at an earlier age, but something unexpected occurred at the same time. Contrary to their expectations, the researchers found that the bacterial infection actually seemed to increase metabolic activity and rate, and that these effects were relatively consistent over the insect's entire lifespan. The authors say, quote, the results do not fit a standard model of bacterial pathogenesis in insects, and instead may reveal additional physiological changes induced by infection, such as either increased hunger or defects in the nervous system, unquote. The researchers give three possible reasons why the infection made the insects more active and not less. First, the insects were living fast and dying young. Second, the insects were hungrier and consumed more energy in their constant search for food. Or third, the bacteria somehow affected the insects' tissues to change their behavior and increase their metabolic rate. 
McGraw and O'Neill suspect that it's probably the last explanation that's the most likely. Although the authors insist they've proved their point, I'm a little skeptical. Okay, so they showed that the mosquito's lifespan is reduced by this bacterial infection, but you see a bit of a problem here. Okay, so they live half as long, but they bite just as many people because they're twice as active. There just seems to be a certain level of pointlessness to this line of study. Uh, But perhaps it's just me who sees this as silly. The Aussie group will continue this line of research, and I wish them every luck. I mean, their hearts are certainly in the right place. They still hope that a better understanding of how the Wolbachia infection affects the Skeeters will eventually help to control the disease vector. Well, that's all from me for now. Thanks for listening. As always, take care, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Sleepless nights for Mr. J.J. Campanella. When I get Jim's email every month now, you know, I get the little kind of article coming through through the pipes, the MP3 of this article, of this little section. And, you know, it's always followed by a little letter. It's just like hell on earth, all these things he's trying to put together and, and do this little show as well. Jim, well, I appreciate it so much, man. Thank you very much. So that is Oral Delights, show number 85. Hopefully you'll get this on and on Wednesday as well, the normal show times. Like I say, we're doing this on a bit of a wing and a prayer. I'm recording this on my little H-Zoom, H4, little doodab there. And, you know, I'm it's, I'm recording little bits here and little bits there, so <laughs> fingers crossed. You get it. I've actually now got to work out how to get the new FTP client, FTP, is that right, client up there? So I can actually get the show online. There we go. Yes, so that's Starship Sofa's Oral Delights, number 85. I hope you enjoyed it. Right, time. I haven't got my cereal bowl now because I'm doing this somewhere else. So what have I got in front of it? Just a table. There you go. Please, donations. Keep this old bird going. £2.50 will get you that sanatorium show. And, well, I'll delve in more just to give you a heads up there. Diane coming over and I'm going to do a show on that. Or it might be actually out there now. So look out for that. And, like I say, you know, it's just like a... A thank you from me for people who are, you know, donating and who are kind of doing the monthly donations. It is, honestly, keeps this bird going. Thank you. Look out for next week's show. Next week's show is the end of the month show, which has a cover. Nice bit of cover artwork coming your way. Do subscribe to the Sofa Nord Show. Until next week, I would just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a badly reached procedure.